I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey guys, welcome to And The Writer Is. I'm your host, Ross Golan. I've written with hundreds of artists and writers over the years, and my favorite part of each session is the first hour when we catch up about life, the industry, politics, composition, whatever. So this is a journey of learning why people write songs, how people write songs, and most importantly, who the people are who write the songs. I'm producing this with The Great Joe London, Big Deal Music Publishing, and Mega House Music Management. If you wanna listen to the songs we discuss in this podcast, Follow us on our socials, find out about special live events, or buy that merch, a.k.a. that hat I always wear. Go to our website, www.andthewriteris.com. For a little bit of context, we just wanted you to know that a lot of these were recorded before quarantine. And as we know, a lot has changed in 2020. So again, please stay safe out there and enjoy the new episodes of And The Writer Is. This episode is brought to you by the new Quibi series, Royalties. Royalties is a 10-episode scripted comedy about songwriters trying to make hit songs daily. The show is created by and stars Emmy and Golden Globe winning actor, my friend Darren Chris, Go Blue, who also co-wrote all 10 original songs. Just to give you a sense of the show, they have Mark Hamill as a country star named Philip Combs singing about King Kong's small penis. They have Jennifer Coolidge as a pop diva who decides to do a K-pop collab and Rufus Wainwright as a dance music icon. You can watch all 10 episodes and music videos on Quibi with a free 14-day trial. And Republic Records has released the entire soundtrack. So go check out Royalties. This podcast is brought to you by CSAC, an industry leader and innovator in music performance licensing. For over 80 years, CSAC has established strong relationships in the creative community by investing in the careers of its top tier affiliated songwriters and film and TV composers. To learn more about CSAC and its affiliated relationships with songwriters and composers, visit csac.com forward slash origins to learn more. Again, visit csac.com forward slash origins. Today's podcast is brought to you by Banzoogle. Built for musicians by musicians, Banzoogle makes it easy to build a professional website and EPK for your music. Go to banzoogle.com to try for free for 30 days and use the promo code ATWI to get 15% off of your first year of any subscription. That's banzoogle.com and use the promo code A-T-W-I to build your website today. All right. Y'all ready? Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> it's like a little and... Swisher gets finished over there. I don't like Swiffers. Does anyone here like Swiffers? Like the Swi- like Swift Jets? Yeah. 
No, Swiffer, Swiffer, the cleaner. Oh, the cleaners. Yeah, yeah. the thing you clean up your apartment. Oh, it's too much disposable At, stuff. Yeah, and they also they leave these little weird, um, <clears throat> like hairy particles. Hairy particles everywhere. I don't like uh, them. <clears throat> hairy particles. The it's new band. New punk band. The new exactly. All right, shall we? All right. Welcome to And the Writer Is. I am your host, Ross Golan. Today's Rock and Roll Hall of Fame songwriting legends defined a genre simply by being themselves. These heroes are the meaning of alternative music, originals in their craft. These guys sold over 85 million albums worldwide by painting with guitar tones and drawing with emotionally personal lyrics. Still, throughout their success, they've notoriously remained aggressive in their advocacy by humbly fighting for a whole generation. Established in Athens, Georgia, these Grammy Award-winning rock stars formed the year I was born and shaped not just my musical upbringing, but many of yours. Fifteen albums later, I'm proud to welcome my new friends, and the writer is our Michael Stipe and Mike Mills of R.E.M. Hello, Ross. Wow, I, I feel like we can go now. That was <laughs> just encapsulated. And thank you so much for <laughs> that. Was that. Great. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we love you. Um, da, 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 and then the, the hook comes, pulls us out. Right. Yeah, right. The new price is right. Right. Um, so. uh, okay, so here's some, some fun backstory. Uh, we're here to celebrate the 25th anniversary of Monster, of sorts, amongst other things. But what's crazy is on the album, you have the live concert from Chicago. I was at that concert Whoa, no when shit. Luscious Jackson was the opening act. Incredible. And I just, just, it was such a mind trip that I think the last time I saw you guys in person was then. So it's kind of fun to see you guys here. We look great. You guys you look, look great. Thank you. How old were you then? 14? I was 15, yeah. 15, yeah. yeah. Wow, wow, wow. Yeah. So Luscious Jackson must have been quite an opening act. Oh, totally. Yeah. Like, yeah. wow. Yeah. Mind-blowing. Well, you know, that's a, that was an interesting band to have as an opening act because they, I think they had one song that was kind of a hit at the mm-hmm. time, but it must have been something that you guys found that you guys really liked, right? I we mean, always and, insisted on, yeah we, yeah. we only took bands out that we wanted to watch from the side of the stage. Yeah. So it didn't matter if they were popular. We took NRBQ out uh, because they're great. We took Pylon out because they're great. And bands that we just like watching them. Yeah. That, but that year we had Luscious Jackson, we had Radiohead, we had Blur, uh, we had the Cranberries. Who else, Mike? Damn. We had Radiohead a lot. I can never remember. Yeah. Wilco was, we had Wilco out Wilco. one of those tours. I don't know if that was 89 yeah. or yeah. 95, but uh. it's crazy. Well, um, you know, let's. We'll go back to the beginning before uh, the you know between 1995 when that came out and uh, when you guys started 15 years earlier. Uh, a lot of things happened. So let's go to the beginning. Usually I start from where you guys were born, so we can just kind of do like a, the briefest synopsis between when you were born to <laughs> when you guys you know meet. Atlanta, Georgia. January 4th, 1960, Capricorn, Sun, Pisces, Moon, Libra, Rise. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. That, that explains it. And in Vedic <laughs> astrology, I'm a Sagittarius. Yeah. Wow. Um, uh, City of Orange, California, 1958. Uh, moved immediately to Georgia and stayed there until I met uh, the guys that made the band. So... Um, how did you guys end up in Athens? I mean, obviously, a lot of this is wikipedia but just for <laughs> the people who are too lazy to look it up, how do you guys end up in, in Athens? It's a college town. Yeah, that, we were yeah. there to go to school, yeah. ostensibly. So how does the band meet each other? 
Bill and I were friends from Macon. We'd, we'd already been in a band to, or two together in Macon, Georgia, and we both decided to go to college at the same time to get the heck out of Macon, Georgia. And uh, Bill started dating a girl that had recently been dating Peter, and uh, Michael and Peter had met and were looking for a rhythm section. Bill and I were looking for a guitar player and a front man. We found him. Yeah, that's about it. I feel like people who start music now are thinking more often about the commercial part of music and what they can do to become, you know, successful where, you know... To become a when, brand. Yeah, I mean, well, now it's hard to become a band. Brand. Oh, to become a brand. Yeah, it's, it's all brand. right. Yeah. It's all about sort of the branding. Even you know, you grow up as start. You guys, you play guitar, and so you have to actually practice a guitar. Now, people, their instrument is a computer. Yeah, and they're given that. You know, what was the purpose of you guys? You know, you're looking for a rhythm section and looking for, you know. A front man. Well, Why? That, that was a little tongue in cheek. <laughs> no, but on some level, but that's how bands started. On, yeah. You look for the other. The, you know, if you're a if yeah. you're a guitarist and if you're a lead singer, you need a guitarist. You, you look do. for a guitarist. You, you, if you need a drummer. You look for a drummer. If you look, for, you know what I mean. Yeah. Why? Why even start a band in 1980? Well, Bill and I had been, like I said, we were in bands in Macon, and we'd kind of given up on music because all we played was, uh, in the the 70s, all all it was was Southern rock. And then uh, my friend Ian Copeland introduced us to all the new music that was coming out of New York and and London. So that got us re-energized, and when we came to college, we said, you know, let's get back into this and and reform the band. And so Kathleen O'Brien, that that Bill started dating, had been dating Peter, she says, well, I know these guys. And we said, well, let's meet those guys. And... And that's kind of where it went. We played her birthday party and it took off. That was our first show, was playing her birthday party on April 5th, 1980. But we met, I was 19. I met Peter in a, um, Peter Buck in a, a record store that he worked in. He was just really cool. I called him Richard for the first four months that we knew each other. <laughs> he never corrected me. And then I thought he was even cooler. <laughs> but, and a little odd. But, uh, you know, I had known since I was 15 that I wanted to start a band and that was going to be my, that was going to be how I was. Were you writing music at 15? No. No, I, I, I bought Patti Smith's first album, Horses, the day it came out, and listened to it all night long. Stayed up all night listening to it. And that morning I just said, that's what I'm going to do. That's it. Um, what's, when did you guys start? What, I was an early adopter. <laughs> what music did you guys actually play on April 5th, 1980? I mean, is, are these covers or are these originals? Some covers and some originals. We had, Bill and I had a few songs from Megan that we brought with us. And uh, that was one of the things that really impressed me was what Michael and Peter did with the music that we gave them. And I said, well, that's that's these guys have something that's really cool. So we had a bunch of those songs. Uh, did any of those end up on... Oh Lord, no! God, I hope oh, no, no, no! They're, hopefully, you know they're, they're them lost. still. Could the you songs? sing them? Yeah, I'm not going to. But could you? Um, Do you I, have that kind of memory? Yeah, no, no. I you played. Do. We had one called Action that I actually played the baseline uh, at a baseball project show not long ago, and Peter was like, "Oh." <laughs> I said, do you remember it? He says, I think so. So we kind of played that one for a little bit, and that was one of the early, very early ones. Did you guys understand, you know, you, you play a birthday, and the people at the birthday like it. So you, that that's enough hope to go and go back to rehearsal and write new music. What, from that point to, you know, building a fan base, and that was an era where people actually went to shows... You know, for bands that they didn't know, it felt like. Yeah. You know, how were you getting the word out? Were you recording demos and people finding the demos, or were they just were you just 
inviting people to rehearsal spaces. How do you build a, the the br- the brand of REM? In, Don't in, say that. <laughs> no, but you no, know, we basically played anywhere and everywhere that someone would have us play. Any, we didn't need a stage. We would just play pizza parlors, gay bars, anywhere that would have us. And um, and eventually, you know, two people in the audience became ten, became a hundred, became three thousand, became. 20,000 became 150,000. We did some fun promo stuff. We made a three-song cassette set um, that uh, may may yet see the light of day again. <clears throat> it had Radio Free Europe and Sitting Still and a song called White Tornado that we abbreviated as Tornado. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and then we, then you know, b- because that wasn't really, you know, getting us anywhere, we said we wanted to find some clubs in other cities, so we cut a 45 just to uh, just to send to club owners so they'd know kind of what we sounded like and here's the band that you're, you're going to get. So And the 45 took off. People they, loved it. It's a song called Radio Free Europe. It became the single of the yeah, year at the Village Voice. And um, the and the B side was a song called "Sitting Still." They both wound up on our first album, but it you know people were watching Athens, Georgia, because of the B fifty twos, incredible band that came out of there in the late seventies, who radically and still haven't really gotten the kind of um, attention that they should get for what they did. They were so radical, unbelievably radical, and they completely radically changed what was then new wave, I guess, in in New York and L A. People had never seen anything or heard anything like them before. What is it about Athens, Georgia? So they were really watching Athens. And anyone that came out of Athens, the band Pylon came out of there, um, the band The Method Actors, um, The Side Effects, and then R.E.M. And I don't know, just because of the bees, you know, we, we, we got a little bit of an audience everywhere we went. What, what about Athens at that time? I mean, there were obviously these pockets in different eras that sure. we can point to. Yep. You know... It's a, in the water. it's a cute town. It's, you know, it's in the a, water. No. Got a, a couple of really nice venues. Georgia Theater is well, there. So, I mean, you know, historically, but, historically, it's 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 a, it's a pretty liberal town, college town. It had a it had a rich history of of uh, of uh, like um, um, political activism uh, in the nineteen sixties and um, intellectual like academic intellectuals and and um, hippies and queers and artists and musicians and so. It's kind of a perfect breeding ground for some some nascent scene like this to to develop. And the, the South is weird, man. I mean, you got to remember this is it's a very strange place, and it's a weird place to be different. And so, a lot of the people who are the musicians in this particular little scene, you know, and we were of course completely unaware that it was a scene, which is what, what makes a good scene. But uh, you know, you it's it's a strange place, and it's a strange place to be different, and it's a different place to be strange. <laughs> so we were all those things, and uh, you, you know, just a lot of creative people uh, in a very conservative, in a, in a liberal pocket of a conservative environment. And one of the ways that you you act out is to be different and play music and make make music your art. There were a lot of these guys were artists that weren't really musicians, but they chose to make their art through music. And uh, that led to something really cool like uh, Pylon. You know, there was only one true musician in that band originally. And the other three were just artists who decided to make noise and turn into the, one of the best the, bands. Who was the true musician? Curtis Crowe, the drummer, Curtis, okay. was, was an actual solid yeah. one of the best powerhouse drummer, yeah. Who introduced you guys to the business part? You know, I mean, that you, you guys are releasing, you know, you have these three songs, two that end up on Murmur. And then, you know, how do you get... Well, how do you go from I'm going to record three songs and we're going to tour around and we're building we're building fans? I mean, something switches where somebody says, you know, hey you guys, someday you're going to be a, you're going to be a, a star. Guy, or try to sell you on something. Well, this guy know? from Atlanta who was uh, about our age was a, kind of an A and R guy, and he um, he had seen REM. Mark Williams is his name. He went on to become a very famous A yeah. and R guy, but but he had, he had seen REM and he. 
he he let a few people know on the West Coast at IRS Records that they should fly out to see um, to see us at a show. So Jay Boberg showed up in New Orleans. We played in front of seven people uh, that <laughs> night, and he was he was one of them. And the beat exchange in, introduced himself at the end of the evening. Said I'm Joe, Jay Boberg, and I said I was afraid you were going to say that. <laughs> and uh, I said I'm Michael, and this is our band, and this is what we do. And he signed us. What a great place. There were syringes in the toilet. It was a, kind of a it junkie a hangout. Yeah. You know, Bill Berry actually used to sort of, uh, Bill Berry was in, uh, he was going to be an entertainment lawyer, I think, originally was his plan. And he was uh, taking some of those classes at school, and he sort of managed the band in the very, very beginning. And then we met Burtis Downs, who became our advisor and, and uh, took over all that for us. Um, in this... In the process of being in a place where people are actually singing about things that matter and writing about things that matter, um, did you feel once there was once there were people saying, "Hey, man, we're gonna you should sign this record deal. We're gonna release music and all that." Did you ever feel like you should write for a different purpose than? for yourselves like did you ever think oh let's go aim for radio or were oh, you God. just no, just no. doing yourself no. and then radio no. just happened yeah radio radio came to us yeah uh, we, we we were steadfast in our desire to put out something that represented who we were and we were fiercely independent and we were and you know we had chutzpah i mean we we hmm. we had a chip on our shoulder and it was our head and we went into the world like that i mean imagine so, trying to write for commercial radio in the in the early 80s i mean the only way to do that was you would have to go synth pop like the you know the Brits were doing, but there was no other. No. There, I know <laughs> there was no there was no way. No, we were just doing what we felt like doing, and we knew it was good, but we liked it. Yeah, you listen to Radio Free Europe, and you're like, well, this is that's that's the sound of you know. Fifteen years later, it's so ahead of its time for when it was, and when we think about the music that really hits for radio in the mid. Late '80s or early mid late '80s, it's so much so much hair hair metal and so much music that's just so different from you guys. But it doesn't seem like you guys weren't musically capable of going that direction if you guys had chosen. Oh, let's go chase Def Leppard. It, you never, know? it never occurred well, to us. Hair I mean, metal, was, yeah, hair metal made sense to me if you listen to the Sex Pistols album. Never mind the bollocks. It's 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 basically heavy metal with a really really charismatic frontman and very different lyrics. And then the image that one would expect from that era coming out of London. Uh, but it's 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 heavy metal. It's not that far off from Rush or um, or uh, not Rush. Let's say let's say no. Aerosmith. Um, Aerosmith, Poison. You know, I mean, it's 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 all it's all pop mu- music dressed up differently. You know, mm. I mean, the and and just a little bit of different sound on the guitar and a different approach for the singer and, and a different uh, hair and makeup. And it's you know, it's it's they're not all that uh, disparate as as you might think they are. So hair metal coming out of L.A. kind of made sense as a reaction to punk rock and new wave. We we talk a That's lot. That's not to say I like it. Sure, because I don't. <laughs> there there were. Aisles in stores at the time, you know, a lot of t- what we talk a lot there about were now. Actually, there were stores. There were actual at the stores, time. <laughs> and there were, and people had to define music. Yeah, and that's one of the most frustrating things for a musician is when you're, nah, we're just we're just REM. Yeah. we're not whatever. We're not pop rock, and we're not right. you know whatever you wherever you want to put us. You guys always have fit in your own lane. 
was it hard for people to when people started defining you guys? Did you guys feel like you had to define yourselves? And you know how did how did that work? Because when you guys are coming out with this music that's reacting at radio, yeah. it's co- when college radio was a thing and regional radio was huge. Yeah. So that really that helped so much in that era. How would you guys? They define didn't know. Yourself. They didn't know how to define. They didn't know how to define yeah. it. So, so they they were like, "Well, it's not. It's not this. It's not that. It's not this. It's not what we are." So, it's it's alternative. So, we were one of the first bands to kind of break into, break towards the mainstream, and help define what alternative music was supposed to be. Now, that's of course an embarrassing turn uh, turn of phrase now, and it was kind Wait, of. Wait, why? Why do you say that? Alternative. Yeah, because it's not alternative. There's nothing alternative about no. it. But I mean, it certainly isn't now. At the time, though, it was. That's what it was called because no one had a name for it, right? right Mike? Yep. Well, there was, and and there was no need for us to define it because what was happening was there was this whole nascent thing going on in America, uh, primarily of of all these bands who rejected the the hype and excess of of the current commercial. Thing. When you think of bands, you think of these, you know, these big, huge, overwrought guys. And there was this whole rejection of that among this, these people all over the country, you know, in, in, in Lawrence, Kansas, and Minneapolis, and all these weird little towns, Omaha. And uh, they were just making the music they wanted to make. And it came about in conjunction with, the, with this new uh, format of college radio. And so we didn't need to describe it because everyone knew what it was. It was indie music. It was people making the noise they wanted to make in counterpoint to the prevailing uh, successful music, so it, we didn't need to label it, and, and we didn't. That's why we made the single. It's like, well, you know, we don't know what to call it. Just listen to this, and you'll know. And you can't really talk about that era in music without mentioning MTV because that was such a profoundly important part of what happened then, and the kind of explosion of all these uh, different labels and then different like kind of side or micro labels. Um, and where we fit in, then I guess would have been 120 minutes. So it was. The place where they put all the all the videos that they didn't know what to do with, they would play on a Sunday night. I mean, how fun! It, it must have been really. Uh, clearly, it was fun for you guys because you you guys were part. So many of your videos were part of the zeitgeist, and you know they would travel travel beyond MTV. You'd see your videos everywhere. Um, as artists, did you start being inspired to create music that? Was more fun to film, or did you ever, you know, were, were there? Did well, you start thinking about, oh, this is all one and the same. This is all the same art. While you're writing, are you thinking of, oh, this is this is how we're going to film this video? Well, making videos, it was very, it was very clear very early on that there was a format that they wanted you to stick to, and we didn't want to have anything to do with that. I refused to lip sync. We didn't want to dance around on stages. We just felt stupid. It just looked so artificial and dumb. So we went kind of the opposite direction. And I came out of art school, so we got really fucking arty. And I refused to lip sync until losing my religion. That was 11 years later, right? Yeah. That um, that um, I lip synced my first ever REM vi- video. And of course, it you know, it became international yeah. <laughs> hit single. So I learned my lesson there. But I, it was because I had seen um, uh, Sinead O'Connor videos and I and I was very emotionally moved by her performances in them. Suddenly something that everyone knew was incredibly artificial and fake felt to me very real. And I, I recognized the the power of that. Now Madonna and and Michael Jackson had gone the other direction ten years before that and became who they were uh, through music, through through MTV and through music videos. Um, it helped to define the music that they were making. We went the other direction. Yeah, yeah, it worked. Um, 
I feel like there's you know to me the you had a a lot of albums that were that were working that were selling and it feels like document to me maybe I don't know if that's just from me being old enough to understand music at that point but to me that's the first album where it kind of gets so it seems so big and maybe just because the singles on it started getting so big you know um the one i love and it's the end of the world uh those songs those songs aren't number one they weren't number one songs on the hot 100 but i think over time those are legacy number one songs did you understand what charts were when you started having these songs reacting at radio across multiple formats and they're happening worldwide are you starting to understand at this point how significant these songs are i mean we chose producers who were going to help us break through some of the doors that were slammed shut in our faces and and why were the doors slammed shut because we weren't we weren't mainstream but the mainstream was coming to us that's that's the beauty of the 1980s is that um you know it it, it happened again with hip hop with rap which became hip hop and now now it's happened yet again with post hip hop but you take you know Billie Eilish for instance you take all the lessons of pop music you run it through hip hop and then you come out the other end and you come, you you wind up with something that's a syn- synthesis of these other styles mm-hmm. but it's completely different and it completely absolutely defines the moment it's it's the zeitgeist and it makes perfect sense we were that but the 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 mechanism wasn't in place uh people dragged their feet a lot more they didn't want to come to us but they were having to because that's where the audience was going yeah when when you would travel internationally that's accurate don't you think Mike? I, yeah that's that's actually okay. and the producer thing is true i mean we we uh we we chose producers that we thought did good records and made mm-hmm. good sounds and the uh you know life Switch pageant we worked with don gaiman who had had huge hits with with uh you know john cougar mellencamp and we wanted to get a sound that that we felt like represented the kind of music we were making, not so much to get on the radio, which was been, which would have been fine, which is what Don Gaiman wanted. He was like, I want to make hits. And we're like, well, you know, if we have hits, that's great, but that's not why we're here. We're right, just going to make right. the music we want to make. But if you turn it into a hit, that's fine with us as right. long as it sounds like we want it to sound, which it did. So, you know, that's, uh, that was the beginning of that. And then he didn't want to make, <laughs> he didn't want to make the next record because, as he said, you guys don't care about hits. He said, I want to make hits, and I don't think you guys care enough about it, so I'm going to move on, and I got this guy you might like, Try Scott Litt. So we did a song with Scott, and we said, holy cow, that, that works. And that was uh, the next five records. And you know, Scott took our sound, and we, his vision was close enough to ours to where you know, he took our music and made it sound like we wanted it to sound, and, and that happened to coincide with the fact that you know, listeners across America were, were starting to, they'd already rejected the, the, the pomp and excess of the, the previous commercial music and were coming over to all this other stuff of which we, are, we were kind of in the front row. So that's how it came together. Peter once said, that, Peter Buck once said, we were the acceptable face of the unacceptable stuff. <laughs> I don't think, and I don't think anything any true was ever said about yeah. R.E.M. Yeah. Um, you guys are releasing albums at that time once every year. Yep. It's a lot uh, of work. It's a lot of work. How do you guys stay that? How were you that prolific and still promoting and touring? How were you actually physically writing? And when are you actually writing the songs that you have to then sift through, rehearse, write? All the parts are being written. You know, I mean, how how do you physically 
Well, this yeah. isn't <laughs> Mu- musically, you know, yeah. instrumentally speaking, you know, when 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 Peter and I were sitting around, we had a guitar in our hands. I mean, you were always playing guitar and uh, you, on you know, your bus, on the bus, or in hotels, or at, at, anywhere, anywhere. In, mostly yeah. in our houses. But yeah, anywhere. I mean, we wrote songs on the road. We wrote songs, you know, in hotels. We wrote them in our houses. You know, wherever you are. We didn't have buses back then. We were in a van. But uh, you know, wherever you are, you're playing guitar. And, and you know, when you're in your twenties, you, there's a lot of stuff in there trying to get out. You know, and 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 it came out through through our guitars. And so we we had all this. I mean, writing these songs instrumentally was relatively easy because we just had so much inside. So the hard thing was for Michael. I mean, to to write. 10 or 11 songs worth of, of lyrics and not just toss any of them off for a record a year it was like I mean I've, we've got the easy part of this job so thank my you hat's for always, you know, it's always been thank my you. hat's always been off to you for that I'm it's incredibly difficult <laughs> <laughs> um, it was a lot of work it was yeah. a lot of work but it's all that we had it, it was it was you know we were in it. It, it it was it was really like the four musketeers you know it was all for one it seems like that in credit wise you guys have always been really good at giving everyone yep. credit yep where, where, because most bands break up for not figuring that out at an early point. Who right. led you in that direction? Peter Buck. No, he, Peter's a, uh, he loves rock and roll more than any human on the planet. Encyclopedic music. And he knew all of this. He knew, he knew what broke bands up, what helped him stay together, you know, what to do, what not to do. And he said, uh, when we first started, he said, we're going to, credit all four songs equally. I said, well, why are we going to do that? He said, he said because the, the, the publishing, that's where you get a lot of the money. And he said, if only one or two of us is getting the money, that's going to break up the band really fast. And I, Damn. I, didn't, I didn't care about the money. I just said, well, shoot, I want the credit. If I wrote the song, I want the credit. He goes, yeah, I understand that. But, but, and this is the, the best thing we ever did. He said, you, in order to, to have any future with this band, we got to split everything equally. And as it turned out, you know, everybody did a huge amount of work. You know, it, I might write an entire song or I might just bring the germ of an idea in and it, everybody else would turn it into a finished song. And, and that's one of the smartest things we ever did. Yeah, it's, it's just so notorious as the reason why bands break up. And, and people, you know, bands hate lead singers and lead singers hate bands for so many reasons that deal with the the credit and but even even in your videos you guys always were in the videos together you guys were always or, or not or not <laughs> but it felt it felt like you guys were always it was you know it always felt like a band well you know we weren't one of those like three musicians need a singer you know we yeah. we came as a two parts of a package deal and bill and i were looking for somebody and michael and peter were looking for somebody and 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 we from the very beginning we formed it as equals you know we one of the early things we gave each other was veto power if there's something one person really really feels strongly against then we won't do it and and that's just that's just how it has to be in that sort of in that sort of arrangement for it for it to last any time at all yeah. Uh, Green comes out in in 1988, and you guys have at this point it's full blown crossover as far as it's no longer, you know, this is no longer really all like you were saying. It's not really alternative at this point. This is mainstream, and it's really the feels like it. It seemed like that those next few years really give permission to the Seattle scene. It gives permission for some people to say, "Oh yeah, I can go and write music that's not Guns and Roses, and it can still be successful," you know, or you know, whatever the pop music is of the time. But it felt like that was permission to do music that, you know, it, it seems you can retain intimate. you can retain authenticity and yeah. still and still be very very popular. That's what REM offered. I think that's what we were able to show that 
Did you mm-hmm. feel at the time like there were people? Um, did you feel pressure to sort of be leaders in the movement, or is it no, sort no. of just it's happening? There was and no movement. Kind of, there yeah. was no movement. We were just doing what we did, and we did it our way and with integrity, and that's what other people saw. We weren't trying to be the vanguard of anything. We were just, you know, we we were just doing things the way we wanted to do them. And yeah. I think that's what other bands saw, and they said, "Oh, well, we can we can we can be popular." Without compromising our integrity, mm. and and if anything, that's what we gave to other people. Yeah, keep in mind, all these people, none of these people were famous at that point. They were all starting their own bands, you know. So right. That you know, Eddie Vedder and Courtney Love and Brett Anderson from Suede and uh, help me here, Jarvis Cocker. <laughs> uh, okay. Yeah, just and yeah. and and Kurt. Uh, the Kurt, replacements. Kurt Cobain all landed on on this at the same time. They started their own thing, and yeah, the replacements actually were one of the bands that we took out on the road very early on. Uh, and they boy did they do things their own way <laughs> yeah and the same with Husker Du and I don't know who else the, uh, Sonic Youth certainly but there were a bunch of band, Black Flag there were a bunch of bands that were kind of coming up together um, and uh, Minor Threat uh, which became Fugazi and or members of which became Fugazi you know we were all kind of on the same circuit and we all knew each other and we all were pushing for something that was recognition really mm-hmm. and in our case it became very wide recognition through those songs and through the the hits that we had, but but it showed those people that I all those people that I just mentioned who were all separate from each other. It wasn't really a scene. It wasn't really maybe little scenes developed here and there, but it it showed that you could remain authentic and do really fucking good. Yeah, and get a lot of fans. The advocacy part and pervert MTV. Like you could really, <laughs> you know, you could. You knew that radio was, we had, we were in a very unique position in that we were able to take MTV and radio and kind of fuck with it a little bit and, and say, all right, we're going to release this song. As our single. As our single, yeah. because we know that you have to play it or we know you're going to play it and people are going to like it because it's so odd and it's such an unexpected, non-business kind of move. And then we're going to get the kind of attention that we want for the second single. And that's what happened. It worked. <laughs> Today's podcast is brought to you by Banzoogle. From garage bands to Grammy winners, Banzoogle powers the website for tens of thousands of musicians around the world. Built for musicians by musicians, Banzoogle has all the features you need for your website already built in. You can sell your music, band merch, do crowdfunding and monthly fan subscriptions commission-free. You can use the mailing list tools to grow your fan base and send professional newsletters. You also can get live support from their musician-friendly team seven days a week. Plans start at just $8.29 a month, which includes hosting and your own free custom domain. Go to bandzoogle.com to try for free for 30 days and use the promo code ATWI to get 15% off the first year of any subscription. That's bandzoogle.com and use the promo code ATWI to build your website today. This podcast is brought to you by CSAC, an industry leader and innovator in music performance licensing. For over 80 years, CSAC has established strong relationships in the entire community by investing in the careers of its top-tier affiliated songwriters, film, and TV composers. CSAC uses a selective and partnership approach with its affiliates, maintaining a small base, which enables them to deliver a high level of responsiveness and service. 
CSAC is also proud of its long history serving music users throughout the country and now represents over 1 million songs across all genres of music, as well as music from hit movies, television shows, and sporting events. CSAC is more than just a PRO and has expanded its business into additional rights categories and markets. They are also building a global licensing platform through a joint venture, Mint Digital Services. To learn more about CSAC and its relationships with affiliated songwriters and composers, visit csac.com forward slash origins. Quibi's new show, Royalties, is basically a satire about And The Writer Is, and it is hysterical. It's basically the untold story of songwriters behind the world's biggest hits and follows the songwriting duo Sarah and Pierce as they navigate the strange and hilarious challenges of creating great songs for insane artists. You can check out the music, which has been released on the one and only Republic Records, on your favorite DSP. So go check out Quibi's new show, Royalties, now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. How many times were there songs, or which songs were the ones where you said this is going to be the single, and they were said absolutely not? They never told us no. I mean, we when we signed our record deals, well, not we, even the label, like MTV and the radio stations, all these people, or did they, or well, that it, never ended up happening. No, it never happened. Not for a uh. long time. I mean, because you know the 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 kids wanted to hear it. You know, they yeah. they're they're not they're 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 in there to make money. They're not going to cut off their nose to spite their face just to say. Uh, we're not going to play that because because you're weird guys and we don't like you. You know we don't like you guys having the power. We you know, here's our song. The fans want to hear it. They're going to call you about it, so you might as well play it. Well, yeah. I think I think losing my religion was supposed to be the song that was released first that sets up the next song and the one after that. So it wasn't even supposed to be a hit. It was just right. supposed to be something that got people's attention. <laughs> Was yeah, and, and drive. We put drive out. I think was the first single from yep, Automatic. That's and right. That's that is not a single. I mean, un, by any definition, it's really not a commercial single, and yet it was a pretty big hit. Yeah, yeah, I would say. Um, did you guys it, at this point? You guys are in your twenties, early thirties. Yep. Are you guys being healthy at this point? You know, I feel like the mental health is something that we're talking a lot about as professional musicians in this era. But there's nobody in that era that are, that's talking about mental health for musicians. Yeah. Um, did you have any guidance as far as going from, or are you guys just looking at each other each as other, trying yeah. to each other, each grow other. up to get... But, you know, it was, it, it was not an easy time to, 
to go through dark periods at all and 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 to and and to sometimes have them not be recognized or acknowledged even by other members of the band uh, and we all we all went through difficult life things you know uh, but we had all made it through our 28th year so that was a good thing that's a, yeah. you know that's a, that's a rough that's a really hard one why i mean i know why historically why the number but why is that so difficult Emotionally, why is that well, that time of your it, life so it, difficult? It's when, it's to when you be realize successful. that you, you're no longer young and you're, you're not immortal. You're you not think immortal, you're immortal up till then, and then all of a sudden, you you question you question everything that you are, and and it's so important. I think that people approaching the age of twenty, late twenty six, twenty seven, twenty eight, certainly twenty eight, that you you know that this is a difficult time to make it through. Yeah. You have to, and that 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 goes across. You know that goes across um, uh, across. Um, uh, all, everybody, yeah, everybody. That goes across all, all different religions, all different um, ideas. Whether it's astrology or uh, your, your Saturn return or your ten thousandth day, or it's it's Hindu, it's 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 Buddhist, it's everything. Uh, that's a rough time for everyone. You have you have to kind of chrysalis yet again at the end of your twenties and emerge as an adult. And people sometimes don't make it. So at that point, we had all made it. But yeah. the, the you know the nineteen eighties were difficult for me. I, I thought I was sick with HIV for. A few years, and I couldn't get tested uh, anonymously, so I was really worried about that. Um, uh, I had quit doing drugs altogether at one point in the early '80s, and I quit drinking for a long time, um, and I quit having sex for a long time, and that sucked. <laughs> but you know, I was worried. And then in 1987, around the time of Document, I was able to get anonymously tested uh, the week before we went on a tour to find out that I was not positive and that I was fine and healthy. Why did you feel that way? Why did I feel that I was? Why did you think you were sick? Well, it was just because it was it was a it was a pandemic. It was really right, It was horrible. Course. And if you're queer, you know, you're if you're, it was it was hitting, of course, the gay population, right. the queer population, much harder than uh, than anyone else. And so it was really really a difficult time. And we had very close friends who died. So and people who you know I had shared beds with, people who were lovers or people who I had shared lovers with. So it was a very very difficult time. But I made it through, and and um and the band helped me. Uh, and um, and 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 uh, and we all made it through our twenty eighth year, and then what? I mean, then we became super well, that, famous. <laughs> well, what's weird is, yeah, it, it really is. That's the the real change. Then we became super duper famous. Yeah. yeah, and and we talk a lot about the what happens in between the years. When you look at somebody's discography, it always looks. You you ask them about the year where the things were commercially successful. Mm-hmm. You don't really ask about the three years where there is the development and the. You know, and the the head games and whatever else is going on to develop three years of your life, and you know, between green and out of time is three years of of human development and growth. And uh, was it three years, Mike? That doesn't seem that seems green like too came long. out in eighty eight, and out of time came out in ninety one. Huh, okay, yeah, because we did the Green World tour. That took a year. I mean, that's change. that's a whole college career. Yeah, in itself, yeah. when you think of it, out of it, so much happens in three years of your yeah. life. Yeah. But for us, that was three out of you know eleven to that point. Oh so, sure, so sure. it was it was just another part of of this journey we were on. I hate that word journey, but that's kind of what it was. And you know, those were that we found ourselves getting more and more popular. And you know, it'd been gradual for us. We were able to deal with it and grow into it and and accept it because um, because it had happened slowly over time. Why do you hate the word journey? I don't know. It's, it's just, just a woo woo. You yeah. know, it's it's yeah. it's it's life. You know, yes, it's a journey. We're all vessels on the river of life, whatever. But it's, uh, you know, it's it's, <laughs> <laughs> it's it's just it's just growing. You know, you you live your life and and you you bump into things on the way, and either you fall down or you or you don't. And, yeah. 
after you have the cleared, you know, when when you you get the test and sure. anonymously it comes yeah. back, you're healthy. Yeah. Well, we're still in the Reagan Bush era, right? So, totally. So life fucking sucks if you're American, and if, especially if you're traveling the world. Every time we would show up somewhere, people would be like, "What the fuck are you doing?" Yeah, we like, did a lot of apologizing. What's with the cruise missiles? Like, are you fucking kidding? sure? The rest of the world were like, "What the fuck are you thinking?" Did you feel like after that you? Well, two questions. One is sure. why did it need to be anonymous, and then two, why okay. do you feel like? Or after that, did you feel now that you guys have become? Famous? Mm-hmm. Did you feel a responsibility to become louder advocates? Well, this all dovetailed at the same time for me. But the the, the anon the, the anonymous testing uh, was because there was rumors that that they were setting up camps uh, in which to place people who were HIV positive or, or had AIDS. And at that time, it was a death sentence. You you people were dying. Uh, a lot of people were dying. And so. You know, it was it was a deeply frightening thing to in in that era under Reagan. And you're in New York at the time, correct? Uh, we I, we were based in Athens, but I was uh, New York has been my second home since sure. the '80s. So yeah, sure. And then the you know the advocacy for you guys becomes really significant around this time. But like you were saying, it's we had not, to, res- it's we all, had to respond. It's, it's not just about. It, it wasn't about just the AIDS epidemic. It was no. about everything, you know. Political, yeah. political, environmental. Yes. Did you guys think of Women's yourselves rights, as yeah racism? All the all yeah. the you know all the giant problems of America, kind of kind of became not kind of all the giant problems of America became more abundantly clear under 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 an administration like Reagan and then Bush Senior, and we thought it was the darkest time. I thought it, I, I referred to it as the darkest era ever. In American politics, I couldn't imagine it could get worse than that. Well, it did, and then it did again, yeah. and, and here we find ourselves. Yeah. Do you find it? You know, and, and we haven't even gotten a monster yet, and I know we, we're <laughs> limited on time. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll go to monster, and then I'll ask some some broad strokes questions, some Mark Rothko kind of pain <laughs> pain broad okay. strokes. But let's go with monster. Um, Monster feels like it was um, the peak of of an of a, the the sort of genre of alternative. Where at this point you have other bands have their second or third album that's successful, and you guys have become you know that in a way that uh, with respect the elder statesmen of a genre, oh. you know, releasing such a, a record like that. Um, being able to release that and then bringing on those bands that you were talking about as your opening acts, the radio heads mm. and all that yeah. stuff. Did you find Monster was at this point a peak of your art- artistic growth? I mean, it's so different. To me, it's so different from Automatic for it's the so people. Different. It's so it, it's not like any of the other albums yeah. previous to it. That was a that was a clear reaction to our own work. And we knew that we, you know, to to, to be clear, we had we had done a um we had put out green. We had done the Green World Tour in 1989, and then we took off um, for two albums. I didn't talk to anyone. I did no. I, I did no press. I just uh, we did a few uh, TV shows like uh, Unplugged for MTV, and but um, but we put out our two most successful records, both really quiet records compared to anything that we'd put out prior yeah. to that, and certainly compared to Monster. So Monster was knowing that we wanted to go back on the road, knowing that we had all these now. Very famous hit songs that everyone wanted to hear that were very quiet or 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 mid tempo. We needed to write something that was loud and fast and raw 
and had some swagger. And so we turned to um, the one thing that we shared as fanboys was a love of glam rock. Uh, and this dovetailed perfectly with me shaving my head, uh, proclaiming my sexuality publicly for the first time, and off we went. And it was perfect. Yeah. Because the world had changed dramatically in those five years since we had last toured, and we were a big part of that change. Yeah. So this was our response to, let's say, the Seattle scene, to what was happening in London with Blur and with Suede and with Jarvis Cocker and... and uh, um, Pulp. Pulp, thank you. And uh, And here we were doing kind of a kind of a little bit of a ironic it was meta before the word meta was was in the line but it, this kind of meta ironic distance uh able to laugh at our own selves um playing with glam rock and playing with that genre of music and 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 updating it to 1995 it was fucking cool did you guys think of these you know i think what's a frequency kenneth is the first single off of it, it correct is. yeah, it yeah. Was, yeah so Releasing that as a first single is another one of those. Well, this is what we're releasing as our first single, and everyone had to be like, "This, what the? This yeah. is not the." Yeah. You know, you've you've now done "Losing My Religion," yeah. and you, I mean, there's just so many of these classic hits that we haven't even talked about. But then this comes out, and it must have been so such a left turn for for radio to be okay. This is where we're going now. Well, also, keep in mind. Sorry, go ahead. Okay, you go ahead. Well, Peter Bach, who who was, you know, for all intents and purposes, the leader of the band in terms of what direction we were going, suddenly picked up and left Athens, Georgia, and moved to Seattle and started a family and bought a house. And then Kurt and Courtney bought the house next door because they wanted to be next door neighbors to Peter Bach. So suddenly the whole Seattle scene through Nirvana and through Pearl Jam, Eddie Vedder had moved up from San Diego, I think, uh, to front Pearl Jam or to, 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 to start the band Pearl Jam. And... Suddenly, these people are not only fans, but they're becoming friends, and they're doing their own thing, and we're pulling from that. But we're we've we're already established; we've already done all this stuff, and then we put out these two really quiet records that sold tens of millions of records of copies. Crazy. And we now have to respond to how how are we as a live act yeah. five years later? Uh, so it all it all fed into that, you know. And Peter wasn't going to come back. Uh, you know, he'd taken a hiatus from the electric guitar for the, for the most part to tone those two records. He played a lot of different stringed instruments, um, you know, because he was, you know, you, you just get stultified after a while. So he wasn't going to come back and play the same sort of, again, another word I hate is that jangly stuff, but he wasn't going <laughs> to play that arpeggiated rock that he'd been playing for 10 years. He was going to come back and play electric guitar in a slightly different style. And, and, and so to get, to get that kind of sound, we wanted the loud, aggressive rock, you know, rock, quote unquote, sound. He played guitar in, in a different way. And, uh, and by that point, you know, music had changed, popular music had changed, and it had gotten more, you know, guitar-oriented and heavy, heavy guitar sounds were not that strange to hear. So when Peter, we came out with that song, it wasn't, it was kind of a left turn for us, but it wasn't really a left turn in terms of what was going on in the, in the music world at that point, because Seattle had changed everything so much. Um, the next, it, so I know we're, we've we got like five minutes left, so without, you know, you, you end up with another eight albums after that, or something like that. Something, Sounds right. Like that. Um, why did you guys decide to call it quits? Why, why, why? <laughs> to, encapsulate, to encapsulate the legacy of what we had created and, and to allow it to not get dragged through the mud by endless um, uh, farewell tours or, yeah. or greatest hits tours. Um, you know, I'm turning 60 in two months. I look great. I was gonna. But, I was gonna say this. <laughs> thank you, but but I don't. I don't. I didn't want to be doing that at sixty. And some people do it really well. Some people, yeah. you know, fucking kudos to Mick Jagger. I think yeah. he's awesome. 
Um, and I'm glad I'm glad they're out there doing what they do. So this is no diss. But for, for REM, I think we all realized that we had done, we never set out to do anything, but whatever it was that we had wound up doing, we realized, well, this is about as good as it's going to get. And maybe this is the time to allow it to en- encapsulate itself and become a complete thing of the past. Yeah. In which, in and becoming that, it can now move forward. It can now be something that people yeah. acknowledge and look at as as a complete body of work. Yeah, that yeah makes I mean, sense there right? were, there, It does. There were there were a lot of lot of factors that came into it, but it all played into the final thing of okay, we we've accomplished everything we, we can possibly want to accomplish. Uh, anything that we might do further you know, might tarnish the legacy that we've created. Not that we thought about it really as a legacy, but it was this body of work that we'd done. It's like, okay, let's, we're still young. <laughs> let's, let's go off and, and be friends and make other music and have other kinds of fun and, uh, while we still can, instead of beating a dead horse. I didn't want to become a judge on The Voice or whatever those TV shows are, and I'm sorry. I'm, you know, again, I'm not dissing anyone who does that, but that's not who I am, right. and it's not what I wanted to do in order to place myself in the, in the public's eye yeah. as a whatever 51-year-old. It was like, no. That's not, Maybe there needs to be a show where they have real, you know. There's, I would say there. I'm a know, celebrity. Get me out of here. That one. <laughs> <laughs> that's really funny. I was thinking where that's, they actually have, the UK, where they right? have bands yeah. that show up that are, you know, that are left of center. That would be something that wouldn't fit in the genre now. Maybe there's some some world where we can actually listen to music that it's not about how do we fit this person in the box, and it's more how do we get these people out of the box. I mean, maybe there needs to be some sort of show where. Or we could use your expertise. Um, we'll go to this next segment, which is usually five for five, where I say five names and you say what comes off the top of your oh, head. Fuck. But being that we don't have like a ton of time, I'm going to go with at least two for five. Let's do five uh, for five. Do five. Okay, five. okay, okay, cool. Yes, all right. Um, okay, let's go with, I checked over for time, we're good. Um, let's go with Peter Buck. Star. Am I supposed to use one word? You can or? use you can use multiple words. I'm not going to get mad at you. Yeah, one, of the, one of the smartest people I've ever met. Yeah. Bill ne- Barry. Next to next to Courtney Love, probably. <laughs> oh, yeah. Really? Peter, yeah, Peter and Courtney are easily. Well, let's do Courtney Love next. Well, you just said Bill Barry. Well, okay, Bill They're Barry. Very different people. <laughs> <laughs> Courtney Love and Bill Barry. Yeah. We'll go with um, Bill Love, Courtney <laughs> Barry. Um, Ooh. Let's go. We'll, we'll do Bill Barry first. Let's close out the. Sure. Let's close out the quad. Uh, he's my oldest friend. He's yeah. the he's the true eccentric of REM. Really? Yeah, he's really eccentric. <laughs> the least normal one of us. <laughs> no William, way. He's How? The guy, he's the guy that wrote "Everybody Hurts." He's a brilliant musician. Well, he's he's yeah. he's he's both very afraid and very fearless at the same time. Uh, I mean, to walk away from REM is one of the ballsiest moves you can imagine yeah. anyone doing, and he did it. At the height of our, every, I mean, at the height I mean, of our everything. Who does that? You know, that's and for for no reason other than it was just what he felt he was, like he, he should do ready, for himself, yeah. was, and, and that's insane. that's such a brave move. I can't. Did so. you guys ever feel like you were going to walk away at four any point? Four million times, yeah, yeah, four million times, but yeah. but we didn't. Yeah, I mean, we're still here, so obviously. Yeah. Um, let's go, with Courtney Love. I like that. Tornado. Brilliantly talented artist. And songwriter. I think we have to do the other one in this case too, because he's you've brought him up, and I, I know that the the significance you guys were to him. But um, Kurt Cobain, great sense of humor, super sweet guy, yeah, very very sensitive songwriter. 
I have to say, like my my favorite. Uh, uh, well, let's go with Radiohead. I thought we were gonna go to Marlon Brando after that. Oh, uh, Marlon Brando. Let's go to Marlon. Yeah, let's go All to right. my favorite Marlon Brando. Um, uh, <laughs> let's do let's do Radiohead. Marlon Brando. <laughs> yeah, um, perfect. I mean, he, they are the Marlon Brando of of kind of of kind of post everything rock. I mean, the word rock to me in 2019 doesn't really exist. It's it's more of a it's more a concept from the past. It's an idea from the past. But but those guys managed to create their own universe and invite us in, and it's a universe that we all want to be a part of. Yeah, I think Radiohead took whatever lessons we had to teach and applied it as well as anyone ever could to their own career and their own music. Kudos. Yeah. Well, thank you guys for doing this. Yeah, for thanks doing for having us. The you, um, you know, for all of us, we're, um, for me in particular, it, I'm, I'm so fortunate to have had people lead the way and say it's okay to write music that isn't part of the mainstream. I've been fortunate to have success in the mainstream and then be able to write music that is left of center and make a living off of it. Yeah. And it's because people open the door ahead of of us and you know the fact that you guys are still here and still making music and doing you know you just released I'm looking at Michael you just released your solo song yeah. in October you know you guys are still artists still creating art and it gives you know it gives all of us hope that that if we're just ourselves that there might be people on the other side of the microphone that want to listen. So if you follow your instinct, you if you yeah, I mean, if you have an idea and you and and you feel really strongly about it, and you follow your instinct. I guarantee you, there's an audience of people out there that identify with whatever it is you have to say. I can guarantee that. Absolutely. Thank Good you, luck. guys. Yeah. Thanks. All right. All right. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this episode of And the Writer Is. If you want to hear music from this songwriter I just interviewed, be sure to check out our Spotify playlist or visit our website at andthewriteris.com. If you like what we're doing, please subscribe to us. You can also like us on Facebook and Twitter. And the Writer Is is produced by Joe London, edited by Miles Bergsma, and published by Big Deal Music. A special thanks to David Silberstein from Mega House Music and Michael White. Until next time... This is Ross Golan. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.